Merlin's Beard. The Jewels of the Trade podcast. Encouraging professionals with industry inspiration, gemology, and more. Every gemstone has a story. And just like the people who wear them, the tales of some of these magical nature nuggets are crazier than others. I'm here with historian Jennifer Severling, known for her gemology podcast, Tea and Gemstones, which focuses on diamonds, metals, gemstones, and jewelry in history, as well as in the modern spotlight. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer. Hi, I am so happy to be here. Are you calling me a little crazier than other people? I mean, I can't dispute that, I guess. (laughs) Aren't we all crazy, those of us who love (laughs) gemstones? Like just a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Usually I'm just talking away to myself. So it's so lovely to have someone else here on the microphone with me. Yes. Jennifer has this phenomenal podcast that everybody needs to subscribe to and check out. I definitely think you'll enjoy it as much as I do, especially if you work in the jewelry industry. There's some very valuable information in there that can help you sell and also connect stronger and know more with the jewelry that you're selling. So I will say, though, you can't be crazier than I am, Jennifer. I didn't mean to call you crazy, although you are crazy smart when it comes to gemstones, which is why I'm so thrilled to have you here sharing your wisdom with us today. So today, Jennifer and I are going to be talking about the Hope Diamond. We are, but I want to segue just to ask, do you, Jordan, think you're in charge of your destiny? Uh Uh-oh. Are you trying to sell me something? We already have a vacuum cleaner. (laughs) If you have a vacuum that controls your destiny, please let me know about that. That'd be awesome. (laughs) The meatier part of the question is, what about the concept that an inanimate object can enact change to people's circumstances? It's funny how often I get this question. (laughs) You're not the first person to ask me, and it's usually from retail customers So I'm a sales rep for Mason K. Jade, and we do trunk shows at retail stores. And often when I'm selling Jade at the trunk shows, people ask me about that because so many people have this very strong connection to Jade. And uh, there's different cultural beliefs about Jade and just a lot of kind of belief in in its mysticism and power. And then it's existed for thousands of years. and, And some of that superstition, I think, has even like carried on over time. And I see it in customers all the time. Yes, yes. It's just that vibe. It sounds like a high-minded philosophical discussion until you realize that it's a concept we've been familiar with since childhood. And on the benevolent side, we have things like a lucky rabbit's foot on a keychain, looking for four-leaf clovers in the playground grass or picking up a penny, necklaces, charm bracelets featuring horseshoes, but then You kind of can swing to on the darker side. There's avoiding walking under a ladder, opening an umbrella indoors, breaking a mirror, anything with the number 13. Don't tell Taylor Swift. (laughs) That's funny. I feel like I do all of these things on purpose. Am I a rebel? Do I do I like purposely seek out bad luck? I am. I actually my husband and I, we got married on the 13th of April many, many years ago, but we got married on the 13th on a rainy day. And we picked it. We eloped. We picked it because people were like, you can't get married on the 13th. You can't get married on a rainy day. And I was like, watch me. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, I was born on a 13 and I was in middle school and I went back into the calendar years ago and was truly disappointed that I wasn't born on a Friday the 13th. I was born on a Tuesday. Oh, Tuesday the 13th. I don't think there's anything lucky or unlucky about Tuesdays. <laughs> but disregarding the days of the week, you have to think about how do gemstones play into this? Well, across time and cultures, it's not disputed. Humans have been obsessed with gemstones. And how could we not be? There are these amazing stones that come in every known color with wonderful properties not shared by anything else in the world. It's no wonder many cultures have attached divine or mystical properties to gemstones. Science talks about how gemstones are formed with heat and pressure, but Besides the science of it, I mean, you take a long, deep look into the swirling colors of an opal, you crack open an oyster and there's a pearl inside and how alexandrite changes from red to green depending on the light source and there's nothing harder than a diamond. I mean, tell me there isn't something otherworldly about gemstones. (laughs) I mean, explain those things to me. So it isn't a surprise that throughout history, mankind has attributed magical powers to gemstones, which includes an influence on luck, fate, destiny, or a curse. That's right. Today, Jennifer is going to tell us about the history of the Hope Diamond, one of the most famous or maybe infamous diamonds in the world. Jennifer is actually a historian with her own incredible podcast, of which I am a fan, Tea and Gemstones. Jennifer, can you tell listeners a little bit about you and your podcast before we dive into the Hope Diamond? Oh, no, I'd rather talk about gemstones. (laughs) (laughs) I am just a lifelong sparkle enthusiast who loves details. I feel like the joys of life are often found in the details, and I just love probing and exploring any kind of little explanation to do with gemstones. I think they're some of the most fascinating items on the planet uh, for all the reasons that I just described. And the world that we live in now is set up in a way that I've kind of created this little corner of the audio universe uh, with my podcast, Tea and Gemstones, where I can talk about gemstones and people that feel the same way that I do can come and participate and listen And it's become kind of this like safe, sparkly space for learning and fun. And I just love it. I love it. I love it. It's a great podcast. You should all subscribe to it. Thank you. So, all right, Jennifer, I do not know enough about the Hope Diamond. I really don't. So (laughs) I'm just going to let you tell me and I will sit here in shock and awe because I did read a book on it. I'm somewhat familiar with the Hope Diamond, but I definitely don't have the scale of knowledge that you have. So I'm ready to be wowed. Explaining about the Hope Diamond is just kind of a thing where it's like, how much time do you have? And no matter how (laughs) much time you have, it really isn't going to be enough. It's one of those stories that the more you look, the more you find. And really, you're just going to have to decide for yourself that you're going to walk away and not listen to it anymore because the history will not run out with the Hope Diamond. And I think that's because it just, This diamond has such a history. We as people care about jewelry, I think, because of the history attached to it, more so than the price tag value. Oh, definitely. Yeah, 100%. I think it's what keeps the industry going, really. Right. Yeah. We we love who the jewelry was owned by, where the piece has been. Like you hang on to your grandfather's favorite signet ring because he wore it every day and you felt it when he patted your shoulder as a child. 
or you love the silver necklace you got back in college and wore on first dates. It's the memories and the association with the past that makes the love, but that affection kind of is a two-edged sword. If memories can be the basis of love, they can also be the basis of not love. Like (laughs) if your boyfriend cheats on you, the diamond earrings he gave you can have the worst juju and it does not matter that they are a full carrot. You don't want them anymore. I saw that all the time when I worked in retail. I think that's how divorce rings came to be. Mm -hmm. Because people, they wanted to remount the diamond from their engagement ring to get rid of the, I always called it the bad juju. And, um, you know, I'd say, oh, well, once you, once you remount the diamond, the juju goes away, you know? (laughs) Yes. Kind of like a, like a salesperson thing. Like, oh, well, it's like a totally different ring. And it is, you know, once you remount that stone, it's a totally different piece and a new experience. And so you can see it in a different way, but definitely, yeah, seeing the stones in the same setting, if it's attached to a, a dark memory, yeah, it's, it's painful. And it's interesting the way that we associate memories and emotions with tangible things. Mm-hmm. It's a really complex idea that like a stone that was once positive has taken on bad juju, but we can take control of that juju somehow and alter or control it. But okay, so what do you do when you're presented with one of the most epic gemstones on earth, this magnificent blue diamond, one of the most gorgeous ever found? But man, this thing has some bad juju, some awful memories and history associated with it. Is that the gemstone's fault? Does the Hope Diamond have the power to influence the lives of those it comes in contact with? What if the curse is fiction? Can you take the risk if it's not? I would. I would take the risk. Somebody give me the Hope Diamond. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take all the juju. Uh (laughs) The history of the Hope Diamond is, is so fascinating. And like you said, it's one, it's how much time do you have? There's so much there. And uh, that history can be traced back all the way to, I believe, 1653, which is when Tavernier supposedly acquired the rough in India, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, his his record of sale to King Louis, the, I believe, 14th was in 1666, which is, of course, predicated on the belief that the French blue was, in fact, the Hope Diamond, which, I mean, I think it was. Do, do you think it was? Yeah. So nowadays, gemstone companies try to be very transparent about stone origins, but we don't actually know with 100% certainty where and when the Hope Diamond was discovered, which I guess is the downside to your origin story taking place in the 15th century. If an enormous blue diamond was discovered in more modern times, it probably would instantly have its own hashtag and a circular meme. <laughs> oh, in an auto-tuned theme song. Do, pe- do people still do that? I'm not very hip. I'm not really sure, <laughs> but that would be the coolest. Yes. Something would be on TikTok. Yes. TikTok. And it would be a trend. It would be mm-hmm. a trend. I, I know my words. <laughs> <laughs> but in 1666, you've got to settle for a small mention in a London newspaper that a merchant had acquired a blue diamond. And when we say acquired, We know the Hope Diamond came from India, but where exactly in India is swathed in mystery? Is it Golconda? Am I right? Yeah, it gets very Indiana Jones. One rumor is that the diamond was plucked from the eye of the statue of a Hindu god who then put... Oh, yeah, that's that's mm -hmm. where it came from. (laughs) And then the god put the curse on the diamond as retaliation for its theft. 
Mm-hmm. But you're right. The odds are that it came from this, um, the Kohler mine in Golconda, India. And a fun fact, I think it's fun. Our first records of the Hope Diamond described it as a 112 carat lumpy triangle. Jordan, would you like a lumpy triangle? Yes. I would love a lumpy triangle. You, anybody can gift me a 112 carat blue diamond lumpy triangle. I will say thank you. I will, <laughs> we can, we can get married, whatever you want. <laughs> there was a reason for this unattractive lumpy triangle shape. And it has to do earlier with what I mentioned with people believing gemstones have power and influence over the world around them. The Indians who mined the diamond they followed the philosophy that they did not cut gemstones for maximum sparkle. Instead, they tended to preserve as much of the stone as they could, only cutting out cracks and other imperfections. And that was pretty common, right? I mean, diamonds weren't really cut for sparkle until quite a bit later. Is that correct? Yeah, it kind of goes hand in hand that they were duly limited by the lack of the physical tools to create things like the modern round brilliant cut. A lot of the diamond cuts that we're familiar with now only developed in the last hundred years or so. And back then it was like size was king. If this stone is 112 carats, we're not going to cut a single bit off of it. We wanted (laughs) as lazy. (laughs) I mean, they knew what they liked and they liked big, but they also believed that kind of leaving the stone as intact as possible maximized the gemstones ability to protect you from evil influence. So maybe the Hope Diamond Cursed was unleashed because people recut this diamond so much and they lessened its evil fighting power. Obviously, (laughs) Mm -hmm, obviously, because it was recut multiple times through the centuries. We know of at least three cuttings until it arrived in its final form weighing in. So it started at 112. Its final form is 45.52 carats. It went from original lumpy triangle to now it's in kind of the technical term it's been described of is a walnut, walnut cushion cut shape. I'll take that too. I'll take a triangle. I'll take a walnut. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not picky. Give me a blue diamond. Somebody, anybody. It would be hard to turn down a blue diamond in any shape. But back when it was a triangle, you're right. It was sold to the king of France, 1666, 1668. And the king called it the French blue. And he was the one who ordered its first recutting in 1673. And he liked to wear the diamond on a ribbon around his neck. But owning the world's first blue diamond didn't mean good luck for the French royal family uh, because they were overthrown and beheaded in the French Revolution. And all the French royal jewels, including the French blue, a.k.a. the Hope Diamond, was stolen by a mob in a week-long riot in 1792. Man, that's rough. That's that's some tough stuff. Now, who? Okay, so this was King Louis. The Was this the 14th? I believe. So, well, and that was Marie Antoinette's husband. Yeah, which I believe might be the 15th or the 16th. It's a lot of Louis. There's a lot of Louis. It's mm-hmm. one of the Louis, but it was Marie Antoinette's. Yes. Name. Yes. Okay. That kind of plays into the curse because I really don't know what could be more bad luck than being beheaded <laughs> by an angry mob. Just to clarify, though, she was beheaded many years later. Like, I think, I think it was like 10 or 20 years after the French Revolution that they actually started lining up. Well, they took them some time to find them. I think she was in hiding or something for like a while. And then they found him and they they chopped off how many like 
hundreds or thousands of people had their heads chopped off by the guillotine? Yeah, uh, Robespierre, who invented the guillotine, it was definitely one of the more efficient ways to do away with politicians. (laughs) But when you're talking about the history of the diamond, it definitely sounds more juicy. Oh, it does. If you don't mention like (laughs) details. Actually, this was common. Lots mm-hmm. of people had their heads chopped off. No, yeah. We just want to mention the one that was connected or the two that were connected to the diamond that had their, their heads chopped off. <laughs> yes. People talk about it as if the king walked to the guillotine, like clutching the diamond in his hand and then it like yes. rolled into the crowd. But that's <laughs> so not dramatic. what happened. We have no idea actually where the diamond went after it was stolen. But when Napoleon, good old Napoleon, uh, when he became emperor of France, one of he declared that he would find it. He swore he would find the French blue. But I mean, he also said he would conquer Russia, conquer the world. He made a lot of declare. He had a lot to do. Yeah, he made a lot of big declarative statements. But a magical stone like the Hope Diamond, this huge, beautiful blue diamond, that something like that isn't going to vanish without a trace. And about 20 years after it was snatched by the looters, it resurfaces in the hands of a diamond merchant named Daniel Eliason. It's smaller. No, they cut it. Yeah, when it was the French blue. So it started at 112. And when it was the French blue, it was about 67 carats. And now it's about 45 so the speculation is the French blue diamond, that's what the looters, they they stole it. And then it was so distinctive, they recut it. But Jordan, somewhere out there is 22 missing carats of blue diamond. That could be mine. I think it has my name on it. I think we should call it the Jordan diamond. But I think it probably already has a name. I like to believe that that diamond may have been the very mysterious Brunswick blue, which if you look into it, it actually has its own crazy story. It may have been cut from the French blue. It seems to be kind of a debated thing. Like, how would they really know? Because they haven't found the Brunswick blue. Mm-hmm. And I hope it's still out there somewhere in one piece, but it's very uncertain. It, it probably was recut into a bunch of smaller stones. But if we found them, we don't know that we found them. I've always thought there may be a way to prove that there is material out there that came from the French blue. Because interesting fact Mm -hmm. about the Hope Diamond, it fluoresces red. Spooky, right? Very curse-like. And as far as I know, I think it's the only blue diamond that's known to fluoresce red. So when you say fluoresce red, that means what when we say a diamond fluoresces, that means you shine it under a UV light and it glows. And in this case, it glows in a completely different color. Because typically diamonds fluoresce blue, right? Or yellow or... Well, yeah, they can fluoresce in any color. But yes, I would say like probably most of the melly and and diamonds that you're going to see in a jewelry store. Yeah. In fact, I encourage anybody listening to this to shine a UV light or a black light on your wedding ring and see if you have any fluorescent diamonds in your ring because that's always a fun surprise. When I I actually carry my my UV pen light around... (laughs) It's my party trick. That's amazing. When I go places, I'll shine people's jewelry underneath the light and they'll be like, oh, it glows. And, you know, they never knew that it glows. But yeah. So anyways, the Hope Diamond fluoresces red. And and so if the Brunswick blue is out there, it fluoresces red too. Or if it was cut into smaller stones, they would probably fluoresce red too. So 
if we were to find those stones, it's it's likely that it could have come from the French blue. I love that. Put that into the universe that if you're listening to this and you're lucky enough to own a small <laughs> blue diamond, please shine it under a UV light and then message us if it's red. Yes. Well, message everybody. Message GIA. Like, let's let's call the Smithsonian. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's find these pieces. <laughs> yes. I, I love that the Hope Diamond has like a tell, this giveaway characteristic that can't be faked or imitated. It just adds to the mystique of this stone. It's like, how cool is that? Not only is it enormous and blue, it has like a secret superpower. Yes. See, that's not a curse. That's like the opposite of a curse. <laughs> I mean, something glowing red yeah. is not usually a positive sign. but It's a little menacing, <laughs> but, <laughs> but this, it's so cool. This one piece we know of, this 45-carat piece, it gets sold to a new king, hops across the pond to King George the Fourth of England, and his bad luck is that he spent all of his country's money. Damn it, George. If you think about the size of England's empire, that's quite a feat. And when King George died in 1830, the diamond was sold to pay off some of his debts. And it ended up in the hands of a guy named Henry Philip Hope, a world famous diamond collector. And that guy's name, yes, he has the pronoun that will stick to the tricky blue diamond forever. That's so interesting to me (laughs) because... I was shocked when I found out. I always thought it was called hope because of like hope, the feeling of hope. I didn't realize it was someone's name. And super fun, albeit random and irrelevant fact about Henry Hope. This man was so rich. He actually helped the United States finance the Louisiana Purchase. I did not know that. So he dealt in diamonds and countries, (laughs) I guess. So he was indeed rich. That's a level of that is not a tax bracket that I participate in. But his descendants (laughs) did not make smart decisions with the family funds. Hope's family would go on to make generations of bad business decisions. And ultimately, his great grandnephew, who could have an HBO series about him, he got into some bad deals about like betting on horses and his showgirl wife got into some trouble and he lost the Hope Diamond by court litigation to pay off debt. Damn it. (laughs) Whatever his name is. (laughs) I didn't even write it down because I was just so ashamed of his actions. (laughs) But the diamond was purchased by a jeweler company named Joseph Frankel Sons and Company. And then this company, you know, we could play guess the bad luck for $500. Jordan, what do you take? Uh, for five hundred dollars, I'll take death and destruction, Alex. Okay, well, it's bankruptcy. Oh, <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> almost as bad. Yeah, three for three of the last Hope Diamond owners lose all their money and subsequently the gemstone. And people are starting to notice. In 1908, the New York Times ran an article about the diamond's woeful history, and I mean salacious gossip sells. Hey, there's something no different than modern times. And other newspapers, perhaps less constrained by facts and sources than the reputable New York Times, they ran their own versions of the history of the Hope Diamond. It's like a game of telephone as each paper subsequently writes a story. They just continued. Yes. That is the perfect analogy. It is. It's like the game of telephone. Mm-hmm. And each person just adds their spice until it finally is real spicy. 
Um, <laughs> they said things like it played a role in Marie Antoinette and her husband, the king, being executed at the guillotine. They talk about the origin of it being yanked from an ancient statue's eye socket, which I mean sure makes for an interesting story rather than the facts, which is a bunch of old dudes cannot manage their finances and they lost the stone. Is that the stone's fault? Well, the Hope Diamond makes its way into some pretty famous hands, the Cartier brothers in Paris. Hey, we know them. Uh Uh-huh. So there was a famous novel called The Moonstone written by a British guy named Wilkie Collins. Yes. No, The Moonstone. If I'm not mistaken, I think that book might be where this whole like opals are cursed cockamamie came from. Right? Is that where that myth comes from? Did I make that up? It certainly didn't provide good PR for gemstones. It did not make them out to be lucky talismans. Oh, He wrote the novel in 1868, and the cliff notes of it is there's this huge cursed yellow diamond plucked from the eye of a Hindu deity statue in a temple by foreign conquerors, and the stone proceeds to cause murder, kidnapping, insanity, and death all over the world until it's returned home to the eye socket from whence it came. Sound familiar? Sounds like a party. Yeah. <laughs> Why did they call it a yellow diamond? Like, was it based? It wasn't based on the Hope Diamond. This was just a weird coincidence, right? So the Hope Diamond existed when this book was written. I'm not sure why the author chose to make it yellow. Maybe he hadn't heard of it. Like maybe that's where like the Hindu deity story came from. Yeah. Was from this. It provided a good foundation for a sales tactic for the Mm -hmm. unlucky Hope Diamond. Um, So one of the Cartier brothers, his name is Pierre. He's the savvy salesman. He now has this blue diamond in his possession. And he has a friendship and business relationship with a woman named Evelyn McLean. And Evelyn was kind of this wild, interesting character. And Pierre wanted to sell the diamond to her. And he compared the newspaper stories about the Hope Diamond to, hey, look at this cursed diamond from this novel. And he kind of spun this web of drama and intrigue about the stone. And Evelyn was just enamored with the drama of this diamond. And she purchased it from Pierre for about $5 million in today's money. I don't think the curse would have scared me either. But you know, I wouldn't say I'm I'm like Evelyn McLean. I don't know a ton about her, but she she was a little odd, wasn't she? She's fascinating and she's worth speaking of, which I will now proceed to do for several minutes in a row. (laughs) Evelyn did some kooky things with this world-class stone. So she bought it and she promptly took it to church in 1911 to have it blessed. As you do. Mm -hmm. Yes. She took it to have it blessed to remove any lingering cursiness, which seems like a very responsible thing to do. I don't blame her because modern horror movies hadn't come out yet. And so she wouldn't have known that that doesn't work. (laughs) Well, apparently, as the diamond sat on its cushion, awaiting its blessing from the priest, a bolt of lightning crashed across the sky and thunder shook the building. And this was at like four o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) Everyone at the blessing was really freaked out. She had invited like a ton of her friends to this blessing. But apparently Evelyn laughed and declared, I've worn my diamond as a charm. Was this her story? Is this from her diary? Is this a story that she told? Yes. And people knew about it. Like 
there were lots of people who attended the blessing. And I think the storm weather report was actually written up in the newspaper. Oh, really? Yeah, like the society pages, like the page six of it. Oh my gosh. I bet she was loving it. She would have gotten so much attention. Yeah, no such thing as bad publicity. Um, She wore the diamond everywhere. Get this. She used to let her dog, he was a Great Dane, and his name was Mike. She used to let her dog, Mike, wear the diamond around his neck when he would go for a walk. That's great. Can we take a second (laughs) to note that she named her dog Mike? That's like naming your cat Karen. That's fantastic. I'm loving this. Keep going. (laughs) So, and Evelyn used to deliberately lose the stone at parties and make a big show of it and make all the children there look for it as a game. Any of her friends and family that had daughters or friends that got married, she would lend the diamond out to brides to wear as there's something blue. Can you imagine there's like a slew of wedding photos of just women wearing the Hope Diamond? Bless her heart. My God. It's a wonder we still have it. (laughs) Well, she even pawned the stone once to raise money to personally fund an investigation into the kidnapping of the Charles Lindbergh baby. I do remember that story. Yes. And then once the that case was tragically resolved, she went and bought the diamond back. It was probably a PR kind of thing. I, you know, maybe like a show, like very showy, like, look at me, look at, you know, this good deed that I'm doing. I don't know. I didn't know Evelyn. She might, she might've been a doll. (laughs) Yeah. Everything that like we hear about her antics, it all seems kind of like a wink and a mischief and with a touch of Mm -hmm. humor to it. But there is bad luck that continued to follow the Hope Diamond. And I mean, I can't help but feel intrigued as I like look beyond kind of the wink, wink, funny, funny things that Evelyn did. Like there's some compelling tragedy for a case that you have to wonder, man, is this stone cursed? Oh, yeah. At one time, my friend called me and she was like, I think my house is haunted. And I said, well, <laughs> don't be ridiculous. Your house isn't haunted. Houses aren't haunted. People are. And I thought it was funny. She hung up on me. She didn't think it was that funny. (laughs) Oh, no. I have never heard that before. And that is both like terrifying and fascinating to me. I know, right? It's chilling. And I think, I mean, I think everybody has bad things happen to them. You probably forget until you like write it out into a timeline. But more than that, I think think people cause bad things to happen to themselves because they're complacent or self-obsessed or unintelligent or, you know, they make mistakes and It's interesting how people don't want the accountability. They'd rather blame a curse. They'd rather, oh, well, my house is haunted or I saw the Hope Diamond or I touched the Hope Diamond or, you know, there's always some kind of excuse. And I guarantee that in every circumstance where misfortune befalls the people in the story of the Hope Diamond, I bet poor choices had been made. (laughs) Yeah. In the Hope Diamond's history up until now, it had been a lot of things to do with money companies losing money, people losing fortunes, kings, you know, it's kind of hard. The French Revolution was kind of about money. Like you have like these kings and queens who are living in total luxury and people are starving in the streets. So everything prior to this with the Hope Diamond seems to kind of take a dark influence on money. But when it comes to poor, vivacious Evelyn, the Hope Diamond seems to have an effect on life in terms that it it brings death into her world. Her nine-year-old son is hit by a car and dies. Her husband divorced her in 1932, 
And then her husband went insane and was committed to a psychiatric hospital the next year. And he stayed there until he died eight years later. And I think I forgot to write this down in my notes, but her daughter actually also died fairly young in her 20s of an accidental drug overdose. Really? What year would that have been? It was towards the end of Evelyn's life, but her daughter actually had like a cold or something and she accidentally took too much of her prescribed medicine. Oh my God. And passed away in her sleep when she was like 27, 28, I think. I forgot to write that in the notes. I told you I wasn't going to go off script, but I love to stick to a script, but I forgot <laughs> a death. Sorry, Evelyn. There were just so many, you poor thing. There were so many deaths. How are we supposed to keep track yes. of all these? <laughs> so while Evelyn is in possession of the Hope Diamond, she loses her son, her marriage, her husband, and her daughter. But Evelyn actually wrote an autobiography, which is where we get a lot of the more humorous anecdotes about her antics with the stone, as well as a timeline of her deeper tragedies. And she speaks of the Hope Diamond and ponders the possible curse. And here is a direct quote from her book. And she called her book, Father Struck It Rich. And the quote from her book is, For hours the jewel stared at me. And at some time during the night, I began to really want the thing. Then I put the chain around my neck and hooked my life to its destiny for good or evil. What tragedies have befallen me might have occurred had I never seen or touched the Hope Diamond. My observations have persuaded me that tragedies for anyone who lives are not escapable, end quote. Wow, that's cool. So I know this podcast isn't about Jade. I do talk about Jade a lot, (laughs) maybe a little bit too much. Jade is lovely. Jade is lovely. I love Jade. But that quote, that doesn't sound unlike Emperor Qianlong's view of Jade, in his case, Jadeite during the Qing dynasty. He was crazier than her for sure. And I mean, she sounds, she sounds like she slid off her cracker a little bit, but he was like way far past that. But he felt very connected to his jade to the point of extreme obsession. Yeah, it's fascinating how people can bond to material objects. And I think gemstones bring out that inclination in people more than a lot of other things. Evelyn, at the time of writing her book in 1936, she may have thought perhaps this was all just sad, random happenings. Oh, I did write it down. But when her only daughter accidentally died of a sleeping pill overdose in 1946, Evelyn, she might finally have thought this is a curse. So her daughter died after she wrote the book. So I don't know if that would have colored her perspective on the curse. We don't know any more of Evelyn's thoughts about this. I wish we had more but she died of pneumonia seven months after her daughter passed. So some people think that Evelyn actually always believed in the curse, but she made light of it in public so not to concern others. And there's the thought that she actually wore the diamond as much as possible on her own person to protect others from being exposed to bad luck. Like she was the keeper of the doom, keeping the diamond's curse contained to only one person to like only poison her life. A psychologist would have a field day with her because you think like, was she controlling of it? Was it like a narcissistic thing? Was it for concern for other people? Like, oh, well, if it curses me, it won't curse others. Like some people want to be cursed. 
you know, some people want bad things to happen to them because then they're a spectacle. Then they're the talk of the town. So I would love to have more insight into her mind and her motivations for this. I mean, she was the longest known owner of the diamond. Um, She certainly could have gotten rid of it at any time, but she never did. After she died, the Hope Diamond was found in a shoebox under her bed, along with about $4 million in other gemstones. Gosh, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) After Evelyn's death, her estate sold the Hope Diamond to a Mr. Harry Winston, one of the most famous high jewelers ever. And in 1958, Winston decided to donate it to the National Museum of Natural History, which today we know is the Smithsonian. And he sent the Hope Diamond in the mail. I mean, it was technically registered mail, but still. I'm pretty sure they walked it down the street, right? Like, I think it was like a huge deal and people came out to watch. Uh, Yeah, he mailed it from New York down to Washington, D.C. So it had to go a ways. It just went through the post service. He insured the box for $1 million, which cost Mr. Winston $2.44 postage at the off post office. Have you been to the Smithsonian? I've never been. My husband and I are planning a trip this summer, so we're very, very excited. Is it because you want to see the Hope Diamond? Oh, I want to like change my address and move into the Hall of Gems at the Smithsonian. <laughs> like forward all my mail. I live here now. <laughs> so he wants to do the air and space portion of the Smithsonian and I'm going to do the gem portion. And we're just going to be very, very happy nerds. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Mm-hmm. So the hopefully the Hope Diamond will be there. The hope It very rarely leaves the Smithsonian. I think it's left four times in its total history for like little tours or to go other places, but it stays put. I don't know if it's because of the curse, but one of the times the the guy who took it, I think he was like the curator of the Smithsonian at the time, he put it in his pocket and he hopped on a plane to take it to, I think it was the Louvre because the Louvre had part of the golden fleece and they wanted to reunite the Hope Diamond, which had been was it the French blue when it was in the golden fleece? Yeah. So the golden fleece is a famous brooch, basically, um, that the King of France commissioned to honor the myth of Jason and the Golden Fleece. And so it was this huge kind of, I believe it's like a ruby amethyst portion at the top, and then the huge triangle of the French blue, and then there was a big golden lamb hanging. It was like this giant brooch that you would pin on the front of your chest, and it was a very spectacular way to wear the French blue diamond. And so it was reunited, like, I think not that long ago, like maybe... Probably within my lifetime, I think they they took the Hope Diamond. Oh, no, it would have been before that because, and I remember this because Jackie Kennedy was the one who requested that the Hope Diamond, I believe, be sent on temporary leave to the Louvre. And there's actually photos of Jackie O, like in the Smithsonian, talking with the curators because the curators didn't want to send it. It was so dangerous. And so basically... The, the head curator or whoever it was, he was like, well, I'll take it. And he put it in his pocket. And then on his way to the Louvre, like everything that could possibly go wrong happened. Like I think his taxi got in a car accident and his plane had an emergency landing. And I mean, it was like one thing after another. And so it was just like, <laughs> it was just like really unsettling for this man to go on this adventure from DC to Paris <laughs> with this With the most valuable diamond, you know, I think at the time. That's what I think where it's like when you talk about the history of the Hope Diamond, where it's like, how much time do you have? Because I feel like we could probably do an entire podcast episode of the saga of the Hope Diamond trying to go to France. Yes. (laughs) Yes. 
just this one adventure. <laughs> Any portion of its history could be extrapolated out to a thousand details. Yes. <laughs> it's just a stone. It's a stone that attracts history. Things just seem to happen to it, around it, near it, because of it. Yes, I wish I could go. I would love to go someday. I mean, I'd, I'd touch it if they would let me and just really, I'm going to test this curse theory <laughs> when when the Smithsonian... I'll FaceTime you. <laughs> oh, yes, that sounds good. Then we'll both get cursed. I think, I think that's how it works because when the Smithsonian received the Hope Diamond, they actually received letters from the American people like begging them, like, don't accept this diamond. It'll bring a curse upon the whole nation. And they said that people would go and take photos of it through the glass and then they would be cursed. You know, they'd go home and whatever, their cat would die and <laughs> something crazy would happen. I mean, I don't know. So if I FaceTime you in front of the Hope Diamond, I guess we'll find out if a curse can go through 5G. <laughs> I don't know if they thought the packaging was cursed and they wanted to keep it contained as well. Um, but the original brown paper box that Harry Winston used to mail the diamond to the museum, that's actually, the box is on display at the Smithsonian National Postage Museum. Somebody had mentioned in a podcast once, or somebody told me, I'd heard this story that that box had actually sat on the curator's desk for like a week or two, and they didn't open it when they first got it. Have you heard this story? I haven't. That literally, like they received it, it was a big deal, it was in the news, and then they were just kind of too busy for it. And so they they set the package down on the desk and <laughs> got to it when they got to it. Maybe they had to paper, rock, scissors for who wanted to open it because it was... Oh, I bet that's what it was. Going to let that thing out. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. I mean, the, the Postal Service does not have the most stellar reputation for timeliness and care with your packages. I wonder... Is it too big a jump to say that because the Postal Service <laughs> touched the Hope Diamond all the way through the mail, that's why they have a bad reputation now? That just explains everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I would I would love to deny their accountability. I think that would restore my, my hope in humanity. But we actually have records of the postman who delivered it. And his name was Todd. Everybody affectionately calls him Postman Todd in their stories. As far as I know, he lived a long life. He lived to be 68. And for the most part, I, I think lived a normal, uncursed life. You know, the Smithsonian sense has, has certainly not seemed cursed. I find it incredibly amusing that it's almost like contact tracing. <laughs> if you did this web that follows, did you touch the Hope Diamond? And we even know all the way down to tracking the lifespan of the postman who delivered it to the museum because this stone has a reputation and maybe... Evelyn succeeded in her goal of keeping the curse within herself because you're so right, Jordan, the Smithsonian Museum certainly hasn't been on a downward spiral since taking ownership of the Hope Diamond. It's one of the most popular exhibits in the entire museum. And Harry Winston's donation inspired others to contribute amazing gemstones to the museum. Curator Jeff Post, um, he actually just wrote a book called Unearthed. I have it. It details out all the different stones in the exhibit. It's a wonderful book. It's on Amazon. It's like 18 bucks. Highly recommend. Curator Jeff Post, he wrote, quote, since the arrival of the Hope Diamond, the National Gem Collection has grown steadily in size and stature and is today considered by many to be the finest public display of gems in the world. For the Smithsonian, the Hope Diamond has obviously been a source of good luck, end quote. <laughs> That's some PR for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just puts that thumbs up right on it. And I mean, but 
The diamond being in the museum rather than in a shoebox under Evelyn's bed uh, means that gemologists have gotten a chance to study this natural phenomenon like never before. And we talked about it a little bit that it can do those cool tricks like glowing red. Now, back to the Hope Diamond. I mean, as far as the Smithsonian's perspective on it, I really admire that they've promoted the positivity of the Hope Diamond. Definitely. The curse mythology, you know, I feel like actually calling it a curse and spreading that information probably started, you know, with the media and with Cartier, you know, in that sales pitch to Evelyn McLean, who was it pretty much like the Paris Hilton of the 1910s. Let's be real. Cartier's exciting tale was recorded by Evelyn in her diary. And a lot of those excerpts actually made their way into newspapers when talks began about donating the gem to the Smithsonian. And keep in mind, this is years later, because I think, did the Hope Diamond come to the Smithsonian in the 50s? Was it like 1952? You're just putting me on the spot. <laughs> it's about that time. Mm-hmm. It's Harry Winston. I mean, that would it would probably be around then. So, you know, this myth would kind of resurface when it when people knew it would sell newspapers, right? It's a good story. It's a great story. It's fascinating. And I think it, it entrances people, muggles, I call them, uh, non-gem folk. <laughs> Even if you're not in the jewelry industry, you're still really fascinated by the Hope Diamond. <laughs> and, you know, I think Richard Kern also makes mention of that. He wrote a book. Richard Kern works for the Smithsonian or, or did at the time that the book was published. And he has an incredible book on the Hope Diamond, which I'll also include a link for in the show notes where he broke down three categories of people who had interacted with the stone. So people who were definite owners, people who were possible owners, and then close family members who would have been associated with the diamond. And then he he correlated all that information with their the age of death for each of these people. This man put in some work because he would have looked at like a timeline of every single person who would have interacted with the stone. And the average lifespan of owners of the Hope Diamond is a bit more than 68 years old. The average lifespan of possible owners and stewards, he called it, was 72 years old. So premature death overall isn't really associated with the Hope Diamond, which I think is a hilarious fact to know. (laughs) Like, I love that he actually sat down and did the math. But I think that the real story of the Hope Diamond, putting aside the fantasy and the, the Hindu god's eye and the, you know, the curse stuff. I think the real story is much more interesting than the fantastical story of Cartier's sales pitch. I think it's so closely intertwined with history. And I love European history and I love American history. And so you you see so many important characters like Marie Antoinette and King Louis and like all these people are in this story of the Hope Diamond. I think there's ample evidence that it probably isn't cursed, <laughs> which which lends credibility to the anthropological observations surrounding the Hope Diamond, I think people want to believe in the curse. I think they love it. I think it's the reason it's the most famous diamond in the world. There are diamonds that are bigger. You know, there are diamonds that are more valuable, but I don't believe any diamond is more well-known than the Hope Diamond. They say any other blue diamond of the size and color would be valued around 40 million or so, but the Hope Diamond's current estimate stands at, what'd you say, 250 million, 350 million, something like that. But it's because it has a story. You know, that's where that value comes from is the story, which it's kind of true for all jewelry, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I couldn't help myself. I had to look it up. So the date that Harry Winston donated the diamond was 1958. 58! I was so close. I said 52. It was 58, everybody. 58. <laughs> I couldn't let that. It would it would make my eyes start to twitch if I didn't look it up. <laughs> I agree with everything that you've said. 
it's like with each his with each fascinating historical event that happened to the diamond, it just like adds ten million dollars to the value, and it just <laughs> yes. stacks up. Uh, but this stone, I mean, after everything the Hope Diamond has been through, I like to think that it is enjoying retirement at the Smithsonian. <laughs> if we're going to put personification upon the stone, I think it is tired. It must be a great relief after being stolen, looted, worn by everyone from kings to dogs, pawned, shut up in vaults, sold, 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 and sold to just sit nicely on a blue velvet pillow all day long, not being bothered, seems peaceful. That's not to say it isn't cursed because on the subject of bad juju, I mean, the Hope Diamond is displayed behind multiple layers of bulletproof glass. Uh, That should be (laughs) enough to contain any curse. No bad vibes can escape. It can only bring (laughs) joy and pleasure to those who come to look at it. Yes. I love that. That's yes. That's so sweet and wholesome. It's just such a phenomenal story about the Hope Diamond. And I feel like we could just go on forever. But I do want to draw attention to Tea and Gemstones, Jennifer's incredible gemology podcast. Jennifer, can you just kind of tell people, give them an idea of the type of subject matter that they can hear on your podcast? Tea and Gemstones is this podcast where it's just for talking about anything and everything to do with jewelry, gemstones, precious metals. We talk history, fashion, science, and culture. We dive into all the little details because that's where I believe a lot of the beauty and the joy is. Uh, So I just think it's fun to talk about the little things that maybe we just don't think about in everyday life, like diving into the history of the Hope Diamond for an hour. That's a wonderful escape for me. That's where my podcast is. They're just little sparkly escapes. It's the most fun. Everybody should listen to it. Jennifer has done a series on the history of gold, which I'll admit I'm saving them. This is how crazy I am. I love her podcast. <laughs> like I'm saving them. And so when we drive to Tucson for the gem show, I'm going to like binge the history of gold. <laughs> like I've been waiting. Like I keep looking at it and being like, no, this is special. I'm going to wait. But she covers some really fascinating topics, the royal family and their jewels. She's talked about all kinds of, I can't, now that I'm on the spot, I can't list them all. But (laughs) if you're interested in Marie Antoinette, I have an entire episode about the affair of the diamond necklace, which talks about a $15 million diamond necklace and how it may or may not have contributed to the start of the French Revolution. Poor French family and their gems. They should have just not owned any of them at all. I think that was the opinion of the French people. I'm pretty sure that's why the revolution started. (laughs) Touche. Wonderful. We did not write that down. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Well, it's a fascinating podcast. I encourage everyone to listen to it. And uh, Jennifer, how can people reach you? How can they reach out to you and learn more about you and your podcast? Oh, I try to be everywhere. So you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple, um, Buzzsprout. I have paid for what they call mass distribution. So if you type tea and gemstones anywhere that you listen to anything, I should pop up. Uh, And if I don't (laughs) find us on Instagram at tea and gemstones and tell me where I'm not so I can be there. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom. And I look forward to listening to your podcast episodes in the future.